Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, recording this intro on the first day of spring here in the mountains of Utah. My guest today is science fiction and fantasy author Ken Liu. Ken is known for his wonderful silk punk epic fantasy series, The Dandelion Dynasty, and has written numerous award-winning short stories and novellas. He also speaks and consults all over the world on many different topics. Ken and I chat about his experience having a story adapted by Netflix's Love, Death, and Robots, and the glut of stories available to entertain us in the modern world. We talk extensively about his work as a futurist and the problems with trying to predict pretty much anything. In particular, recent advances in artificial intelligence and what that means for the creative industries. Enjoy my conversation with Ken Liu. Well, Ken, thank you again for coming on to chat with me. It's a pleasure to meet you. I've heard your name a lot. Um, I read Grace of Kings back when it came out um, and loved it. I was, I was just doing my regular research this morning, and uh, and I hadn't realized that you had a story in uh, the Netflix anthology, Love, Death, and Robots. Um, well, first of all, thank you, Brian. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, Yes, that was uh, that was quite a fun experience to see uh, my work turned into the animation. Um, I thought that was a lot of fun. Did you get to be involved in that at all, or was it just like a, a signing a thing for somebody to do it? it? It's the latter. I mean, I actually do quite a bit of adaptation for my work, but in that particular case, uh, they had a very specific vision of what they wanted to do. So it really was just me signing a piece of paper, and that was the end of that. I didn't even see it until you know, everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> but that is quite cool, though. Like, uh, I've gotten some some rights picked up, but I've never obviously had anything adapted. And I'm, I'm fascinated by the mentality that you have to kind of go into with it. The thing that just surprised me was just how much greater the reach is, you know, for something like TV. Um, I mean, I, I don't know how many people read that story. Um, it was in my collection. So anybody who read my collection did get to read it. And it was originally published on Strange Horizons. And so readers of the magazine got to read it. But I definitely got a lot of lot more um, people commenting uh, on it afterwards. And I'm sure the people who actually even knew that it was based on my story, it was a minority of the people who got to see it. I mean, the way Netflix does it, you know, they they get you right onto the next episode. So you really have to be very careful to look at the credits to even see me. Otherwise, it just skip right over. So <laughs> the fact that a large number of people even recognized um, me from that just makes me realize just how big, you know, the reach is. Right. And, and when you have like, 
you know, when, like, when you have a new thing like that and it's the, I mean, it's part of an anthology, obviously, but when you have a new season of something like that, just pop up on Netflix and it's on their front page for a week or two, you know, that's, that's a crazy reach. Yeah. It, it is just interesting to compare, you know, how, how much greater, um, uh, the cultural reach is. I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't really, um, I think there are different strengths to each medium, whether you're writing or making a, a TV show, but, uh, it definitely just, it struck me. I was, I was very struck by the fact that so many more people watch TV. <laughs> right. Right. It's, it's weird trying to explain to kind of like a lay person, like the, the reach difference on these types of things, you know, cause it, it could be, you know, it could be for a, a quite a successful author. You know, it could be, you know, a hundred thousand for their book, but then you go to like a TV show and then the suddenly several million, and then you go to like a movie and then suddenly a hundred million. And it's, it's absolutely wild. I mean, it is kind of cool that we get to live in this age, which is I think the golden age of TV, right? I mean, streaming TV has allowed shows that never could have been made before and you're just getting some of the best stories ever told um on, on the small screen uh i'm really amazed I, <laughs> I i'm sure you feel the same way we don't have enough time to watch all the shows we want to watch you know it's incredible oh no there's just there's too much stuff out there you know like i i i feel like i'm bombarded every week with like a different thing that everyone's talking about same. and i'm like man I, i'm on the thing from a year ago still it's, it's how do you catch up yeah yeah, totally. I, I don't know how you ever do it. And then not to mention there's games too, you know, another medium in which it's just like so many amazing things are being done. So many great stories. I just, oh man, we are, we are totally spoiled <laughs> in terms of good stories. Oh, oh yeah. Everybody has those dumb jokes up their sleeve that they pull out the appropriate moment. One of my dumb jokes is whenever you hear somebody talking about something horrible that happened in the past, my dumb joke is, well, they didn't have television. Clearly, they had to occupy their time with something. <laughs> oh man, yeah. I, I I I often think like you know people who are alive today. We have consumed more good stories than any generation alive in the past. It, it really is astounding. It's like we've seen more good pictures. We've consumed more good stories. We've read more. Really, um, all of us. Uh, I I. It's it's really quite striking to think about you know how profound and how lucky we are in so many ways yeah for sure oh it's it is it is fascinating to like kind of try to wrap your mind around how um the consumption of entertainment has changed uh, just in the last hundred years like it's wild or even the last 20 years, I would say <laughs> it's, it's wild, right? It's like yeah, exponential. Yeah. I mean, we got to see, if you're talking about a hundred years, we got to see the rise of two, at least two, if not three or more entirely new mediums for storytelling. I mean, you know, we got to see film being invented as a language. I mean, we're not that far from the days when people would exclaim at a train coming at the camera. That that was like, you know, amazing. And then everything about the language of film got invented in the hundred years after that. Montages, reaction shots, slow-mo, tone. I mean, just everything. Now we consume films as though we are born to understand this language. But it's a really strange new medium that we all we've all had to learn to work with. And then You've got TV, which is its own language, and you've got games, which is changing on a daily basis. I just, 
man, it's uh, it's really amazing. If you're like a historian of media, you know, you, you're you're studying the history of storytelling and the grammar of storytelling. This is just an amazing age to go through. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And and you are you also have a keen interest in uh, futurism and kind of l- looking ahead. Um, it, so I, it's one of those terms that I have heard a lot. And I've always thought, okay, I have a vague idea what that means. Can you explain it a little bit to the listener? Yeah. Futurism is one of those terms that gets thrown about a lot, and um, it doesn't have a precise definition. Um, I get hired as a futurist in different contexts, and usually I go there, and uh, people who come who show up often have very different areas of expertise. Some of them are scientists who have thought very deeply about their technical area of expertise, and they can speak about the impact of that area of technical knowledge. Some are economists, and they can speak about um, the their, their projections and models. Um, I tend to come at it slightly differently. I'm a narrative futurologist. So what I do is I study um, the history of storytelling, imagining the future. And I talk about what are the ways for us to tell stories about the future, to imagine the future that will either lead to profitable or uh, just uh, um, productive ways of imagining versus ways that are not. Um, I tend to advise um, you know, governments, uh, institutions, corporations. Um, my focus is on storytelling. So I focus on the idea that part of trying to engage with the future is to figure out what is the story you're trying to tell as an individual, as an institution, as a country, as a, as a branch of the military, what have you. What is, what is your story? What is the story you imagine yourself part of? And what does that mean when, when you are locked into a story? What are the things you don't notice? And what are the things that you pay too much attention to? Because a recurring theme, just to back up a little bit, a recurring theme of my work uh, comes from the fact that I worked as a technologist for many years. Uh, I um, both developed technology, but also later on worked as a um, an expert witness in technology cases. So for those kind of engagements, I ended up becoming a, an amateur historian of technology, if you will. And I've developed a bunch of scenarios and theories as to how technology actually develops and how we are constantly blinded by our tendency to tell stories about the future such that we cease to realize how unpredictable and how utterly um, uh, unstoryable the future really is. So it's sort of ironic because my focus is on trying to get people to understand the stories they're telling, conscious or unconsciously, trying to get them to recognize it. Because my honest feeling is, even though I tell stories about the future for a living, telling stories about the future is a very dangerous thing. You end up being blinded by your stories, and you end up not realizing the things that are not in the story. Um, and, and so I just remind people over and over again, don't be seduced and fooled by your own story into thinking that's how the future will be. The future will constantly always surprise you. The best thing you can do is to just leave yourself open and be prepared for cataclysmic change. But don't fool yourself into thinking that because you can tell a story that makes sense of what's happening now and you can envision a future, that's the way the future will be. It almost never turns out that. See, I think that is absolutely fascinating. Kind of this idea of, of looking backwards to look forwards 
Man, I, no, that that is really interesting. Like the trying to grasp, kind of, kind of trying to get your mind around this idea that people have always talked, told stories about the future, and they're almost always wrong. Yes, exactly. And and trying to use that to develop how you react and interact with the future that we have suddenly now. Exactly. I want people to develop an immunity to stories. It sounds ironic because I'm a storyteller, but (laughs) I want people to develop an immunity to stories because stories can be some of the worst ways to um, fool yourself into thinking you know what's coming. Uh, Because we, we just have a tendency of extrapolating from current trends and saying, oh, this is what happened in history, so this must be how it's going to be. It's never like that. Never. Well, and I think of like, I think of like those old stories. I can't remember if this was one I read in an Edgar Allan Poe uh, anthology or not, but there's like, there's one I was just like popped into my head that was like, uh, like a guy that had, that took a balloon up and then eventually got to the moon. You know, there's these like funny things, the way that, the way that people started thinking about, you know, space, for instance. Well, you remember Jules Verne, right, with, with that whole, um, uh, you know, in his novel, it was a bunch of Americans who, after the Civil War, didn't know what to do with their expertise in firearms. So they developed this huge cannon to shoot you know, a capsule to the moon. That was the idea. Oh, and that's, it is, it's, it's interesting to see what people in the past thought of and, and what they got so wrong. You know, like, you look oh, back. It's the- wild. <laughs> and you think of what people in the 50s, they thought we were going to be living in this age of nuclear-powered cars and things like that. Oh, yeah. I I love – so when I do the uh, futurism talks, I love showing people um, retrofuturism uh, images. So, for example, there were these artists from, I think, um, maybe uh, just a little bit over 100 years ago – who imagined life in the year 2000, right? So they painted these images. And it's just wild to, 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 to see these pictures and sort of to see what they thought wouldn't change versus what they thought would. And it's just amazing. They got all these ladies and gentlemen in their, in their you know, very elaborate dresses flying around on a pair of wings, completely impractical. And you're like, how could they even imagine that this could work? Uh, They've got um, these automated vacuum cleaners, but they're not truly automated because you actually had to have a maid stand there with a remote control to control these little vacuum cleaners. And I'm just like, oh my God, they thought, you know, this this would be the way. Well, and, and you look at that and try to compare it to how we actually ended up because it's like, like we didn't we didn't end up with you know personal flying machines but we also we have a thing in our pocket that connects us to the entire human race and the sum of all of our history and knowledge and that's why and like most people have that in their pocket right and that was something that was not really imagined 100 years ago that was just not where people's imagination went to so you know today we imagine the future you know people like me tell stories about the future and you know there's no doubt that in 100 years they'll look back on these stories and just laugh at them you know because they're not at all (laughs) aimed at the direction where things actually go I, i have no illusion about um, our ability to predict the future in that sense. Um, so I'm sometimes a, a little bit of an oddball at these conferences because, yeah. you know, everyone else is projecting these lovely images of the future. And I go up there and my my message basically is, none of this is going to happen. This is all nonsense. <laughs> Do not listen to any of this. And people are like, you're, you're not really helping. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does. It's almost like a crapshoot, right? Like, because some of those things could totally come true. They could. But... 
but nobody actually knows like no and and in today and kind of the way that we're all connected with twitter and all of the social media garbage and everything everyone has a hot take about what tomorrow is going to be like what's the big stock tip you know what's the new technology jump all that stuff yeah it's true and you know the thing is once in a while you know some people do get it right but i always wondered do they get it right more because they were lucky versus they really knew something we didn't you know it's 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 hard because historically um what you can see is every time there's a problem that people race to solve, there are hundreds of different teams around the world all trying to solve the problem. And from from the point before the moment the breakthrough happens, it's really, really hard to tell which one's going to make it. It's just almost impossible, I think. But once the breakthrough happens and you look back, you can manufacture all kinds of reasons for why that particular solution was inevitable. It had to be the one to succeed. And and over and over again, I tell people, you know, this is this is the narrative fallacy. This is our tendency to come up with causes to explain the universe and to make it seem more logical and reasonable than it really is. It's just it's just not. The universe is very random and very unpredictable. And there's a lot of survivorship bias, a lot of narrative bias, a lot of tendency to to justify why we are where we are. Um, but really, don't don't get fooled by that. It's, it's yeah. not a healthy mindset to have. But it's so human nature. To it is. That. like It is. Because it's terrifying. The idea of, of absolute chaos, the idea that the idea that, you know, a guy has the has the cure for cancer in his head and gets hit by a bus before he can write it down, you know, like all that stuff. That's that's really scary to the average person. It, it really is. And, and the thing is, I, I want to remind people, which is that we tend to think that there is the cure for cancer for cancer. When in reality, there may be hundreds of different ways to cure cancer. It's just not clear which way is going to succeed. In, in, in the end. And uh, once it happens, you know, let's not let's not make innovation more seem more unlikely than it actually really is. Even if that particular solution didn't happen, some other solution would have happened. Yeah. Well, and you get that sort of thing in history where you look back and and like a similar leap forward happens in different places across the world at the same time. That's right. That's right. And that's that's kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, it is. That well, that's why alternate histories are so fun, right? I mean, it's we we love that trying to imagine how things could have been different if we had just gone down slightly different paths. Um, it. I mean, I love storytelling. That's why you know we do what we do. <laughs> So I, I'm really fascinated by this idea that you that you like end up at these conferences where they're trying to predict the future and they're trying to talk about you know what's happening tomorrow and 20 years from now and all that stuff. I uh, like it, it almost feels like what you end up kind of doing and this may be totally way off, but is almost like a predictive propaganda, like a like a <laughs> we're, we're trying to create a story around what we think will happen in the future. Something like that, I guess. I, I think you can you can say that that's what a lot of people do. I guess what I think of is what I try to do is to inoculate people against being fooled by propaganda because it's really easy to go to one of these conferences and be so convinced by these presentations and say, oh, that's got to be the way it's going to be. We got to prepare for that particular future. Well, I'm not saying that future is not going to happen, but you know, my my job, as I view it, is to inoculate people against the tendency to be too convinced by stories. I want to tell everyone, look, 
that story is very convincing, and I can tell the story about the opposite. That's going to sound just as convincing. There's no way to know which one's going to true or something entirely different from both of those scenarios. The thing you got to do though is to remember that.、Um, so this is this is the second part of my presentation, which is usually you just have to be prepared for change. We all we know is that things are going to be very different. You got to be ready to pivot and flex and try to figure out the best way you can flow towards the future. However, the one thing you can also do is to really interrogate yourself and ask yourself, what is the story that you really believe in? The story that embodies the values you care about the most, because those are the things you got to hold on to. And if you know what those values are and what the stories that matter are, you will be ready for any change because you'll know what to care about and what to discard. You will be able to discard all the stuff that don't contribute to that core vision and hold on to it. And then, no matter how things change, you'll be ready. So, you know, I, I tell people、um, there are two types of stories. There are the stories that really. Lead you down the wrong path because they convince you that things are going to be a certain way, and if you really believe that, and you're not ready for any other change, you're kind of screwed. But there are also stories that are really good—the stories that tell you who you are in a fundamental, value-based way. You hold on to those stories because then you'll be ready to shift and change. And to adjust to whatever changes come. Yeah, yeah. I I feel like that.、Um, I feel like I can almost hear kind of your、uh, your history as um, um, as a lawyer and、uh, and as a consultant in that because it's very goal oriented. It's very、uh, structured, but it's also kind of coded in storytelling. And it is. And it's a, because you know fundamentally that's all we are. We we. Think we're convinced by data. We think we're making decisions based on, you know, rational analysis. And I'm not saying that's entirely an illusion. There is some truth to it. But a lot of the times, the thing that really motivates us is this emotional connection with whatever story that has convinced us. And and, you know, but I don't I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I keep on saying so far that. We got to be careful about being deceived by the narrative fallacy. But the counterpoint to that is, deep down, we are just collections of stories and emotions and values, and 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 we can't deny that very human aspect of of who we are.、Um, you know, the things that we are committed to at our deepest level are not things we can justify by some sort of cold rational analysis. They're just not.、Um, there are things that we. Have an emotional connection to our love of country, our love of family, our love of whatever cultural, religious tradition that we hold dear to. These are not rational、um, convictions. They're just not. They're they're emotional, and you have to understand that and and accept that. That is just how you know. That's part of being human.、Um, these are the stories that move us at our core. Our deepest ethical commitments are stories. <laughs> Hey, Page Break listeners! Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to Patreon.com/PageBreak, where you can toss as little as three dollars a month into the tip jar, five dollars a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and ten dollars a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me.
I imagine that kind of in this particular moment, that what's bombarding you right now is probably the AI stuff. Oh yeah. Cause we've, we've been getting like just absolutely hammered with that. The like what the last month or two, especially mm-hmm. kind of the public, mm-hmm. because that, that's one of those things that was never in my kind of line of sight. And then suddenly everyone I know is talking about it. I know. Well, I, I'm curious, what do you think about it? Like what, when people come to you and, and ask you as an author, what do you think about ChatGPT writing books? Like what's your reaction and what do you think? Um, I mean, I guess my, my gut reaction is dear God, I hope they don't get good at it because I want to keep my job. <laughs> that's like that's like my totally straightforward like, uh uh like human answer i mean i guess if i was to sit down and think about it i i don't know i mean you look at the i think that uh, like you look at the art stuff and you look at um you know the problems that ai has with art and that the people designing these systems are trying to work out you know like the ai thing with fingers is apparently a weird thing um i don't know enough about like the behind the scenes to know why that's weird but i that's what i've heard um and i got to imagine that it's even more complex of a problem to deal with um it with storytelling because there's so much kind of going on with that there's so many more kind of um points of failure uh, for for a machine to try to replicate what a human can do in like a 200,000 word book, for instance. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so, so I mean, I, I think we're probably a long ways off still from, from, from someone being able to, you know, give a prompt and then spit out a full readable novel. But who knows? I, ugh. yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky, right? Because, um, my reaction to this is in some ways very similar to yours, which is, uh, number one, um, you know, do I feel a little bit threatened in some sense? Um, maybe? I, I don't I don't actually even know if I should feel threatened or not. Um, on, on the one hand, right, there's there's the, the fact that, um, again, I have to sort of tell myself to be very careful about not being deceived by stories. But, you know, my, my tendency is to go back and look at historical analogs to this sort of revolution and to think about what aspects of those revolutions did people get right before it happened and what aspects did people not see at all until after it happened. So, for example, right, there's uh, there's photography, right? When photography was invented, there was a huge amount of panic about what this would do for artists because one of the things artists got hired to do was to paint portraits. That's one of the most lucrative and most important things that they did. Um, And now why would anybody hire a painter to paint a portrait when you can take a photograph, which is like so much better, quote unquote, in terms of representation and and realism. Um, And so there was all kinds of fears about what would happen. And then people were saying, oh, you know, a photograph will not work because the subject has to sit there for two hours for the photograph to be taken. Nobody will want that. It it just looks really not right. Um, You know, there was all sorts of like speculation. Of course, you know, later what we saw was that um, some of the predictions were right only in the sense if you squint real hard at it. Artists were in fact no longer hired to paint photorealistic portraits, or at least not unless you were extremely wealthy (laughs) and wanted that. Um, But art shifted into other realms, right? It it became much less about representation, but much more about capturing feeling or emotion or evoking something. Um, In some ways, the entire Western tradition of photorealism in art was wiped out, but that didn't mean art somehow 
lost its place. It just went in a different direction. So you could imagine that right now we're talking about novelists losing their jobs to AI. I have no idea if that will happen. Maybe, but if so, I got to think that humans will just end up doing something entirely different. As writers, we'll probably just go in a different direction with our storytelling. I don't know what that means. Like, what is the equivalent to abstraction in in in, in storytelling, and what does that mean really? Um, I I don't know, but I, I I just can't I can't imagine that our fears are telling the whole story and that we've got the future right just by telling this. Apocalyptic vision of all the writers losing their jobs, wandering through the streets like zombies. I just, I don't think that's what's going to happen. I mean, I just do that normally. Um, <laughs> but it's, it is, it's true. research, Brian. It's research. <laughs> Very much so. No, and, and I, I do think about these kind of things because it's impossible to kind of understand and predict what like the public is going to react to a certain thing in a certain way, you know, like, like maybe AI in 20 years is perfect at telling stories. And the public looks at that and goes, it still doesn't feel right to me. I'd prefer a human. Right. You don't know. It's really hard to tell. I mean, or, or the alternative, which is these stories are so good that the machines authoring them must be intelligent. There's no other way. If, if if the machine is able to tell these stories, then they're not just imitating. They're not just copying. They they actually are thinking and experiencing, you know, in, in so far as we believe that fiction authors are really presenting some, some unique take on reality, filter through their personality. Um, and and we engage with it because it's a it's a fellow intelligence, a fellow sentience. Then, in so far as machines can do this, the machines must be intelligent. I I don't know. That seems to me a much more profound and unsettling and interesting outcome than merely, you know, I can't write novels the way I do now. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. It's and it's like like because then you suddenly have. Um, oh, there is a thing that can mimic human, you know, emotional resonance. Is that mimicking or is that real? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. You're asking a million new questions about, did we just give birth to new intelligence? Right. So in which case, the fact that I can't be a novelist anymore is the last thing I care about. I mean, that is that is a much more profound change in society. So I guess I guess my answer is, <laughs> I'm not particularly concerned about losing my job because if we get to the point where machines can actually do that and they they are sentient, then I think we have much more profound social changes to worry about than than this. Right. It's like trying to predict how dominoes will fall when each domino has an infinite number of dominoes that it could click against. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But it's it's wild. It's still... Meanwhile, it's just kind of fun to play with, um, you know, something like ChatGPT or MidJourney and try to get it to make pictures. My my daughters love to play with um, AI. Um, I'm I'm supposed to set up, you know, a proper uh, stable diffusion setup on my machine for them to play with, um, and and I haven't had a chance to really do it. But um, what they've been able to do so far, just with the free version uh, they can access online, it's pretty wild. They, they they love giving it interesting prompts and see what sort of things come up. I, I'm I'm genuinely kind of the most fascinated with the idea of AI kind of re- replacing or or sliding into the slot that like Google fulfills. 
because mm. it's so simple and relevant to the average person. Like, mm-hmm. like the other day I had a, um, a friend of mine is a, a high school coach and he said that he was using um, chat GPT to, uh, to do custom workouts for his kids. And he was just typing in some parameters and then poof, it just gives him a workout. And then he could tweak it a little here and there. And so I went on there and I went, okay, give me a yoga routine for a guy in his late thirties that is overweight with rheumatoid arthritis. And it did in like 10 seconds. And I'm like, well, crap, like this is like such a, a customized and easy thing that I'm with you cuts so much out of my day. Oh, I'm with you hundred percent. I mean, the, the, the fact that, um, ChatGPT is finally uh, presenting a real challenge to something like Google search engine after 20 years is, to me, pretty profound. I mean, I remember when Google first came out replacing AltaVista and all of those predecessors. I mean, it was like magic. You could type in some terms and it would give you the exact page that gave you the answer. And I was just like, oh, my God. I mean, they knew they had magic. That's why the, you know, I'm feeling lucky button that was that was there because because of that magic. Um, and then. But over the years, it's gotten harder and harder because, you know, people have learned to optimize themselves for Google's ranking algorithm. So now it's very hard, actually, to find the relevant information. If I need to give my parents, say, instructions on how to uninstall a program or something, it's actually very hard for me to find a page that I think contains the good instructions and even then to tell them where to find those instructions amongst all the ads and banners and all the other stuff, right? But you can now type into ChatGPT, write out the instructions for how to uninstall a program from Windows. And it does it. It gives you this really wonderful list. You can copy and paste. I mean, it's just so much better as a result. Um, yeah, it, it, it definitely has, in a lot of scenarios for me, uh, been the better search engine, quote unquote. Well, and I, I find it fascinating, the idea, because we we have almost been trained over kind of since the advent of the internet to kind of accept that there's going to be more and more noise in our lives every year. Um, I mean, I was, gosh, I would have been about, I think about nine when my dad, uh, you know, got uh, kind of dial up internet and he, you know, like, you know, put that on the family computer and, and suddenly that was a thing I could play with a bit. And like just since then kind of I've progressed to the point where, you know, like, like you said there, you go to a website and it's just ads and ads and chaos and ads right in the center of the text. And so you're trying to pick your way through this thing to find information. And the idea that we could suddenly leap towards less chaos, that is very alluring to me. Yeah, absolutely. Same, same here. I mean, it's not even, it's not even just the web design has gotten to be information hostile. It's just that even the very nature of the information itself has become noisy. Um, you know, everything has to be wrapped up in so much commentary now and, and, and all this stuff. It's actually very hard to even pick out the piece that you care about. Um, it, it's really it's really interesting. And also just the rise of content farms. You know, um, we talk about AI writing now, but, you know, semi-AI written junk has been on the internet since forever and it's gotten even worse um it's uh it's 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 to me it's sort of astounding just how much we've allowed ourselves to accept the state um, of affairs as somehow normal like the fact that we have to install a bunch of extensions whose only job is to rewrite the html and filter out as much ads as possible and that 
it is expected on the other side for the websites to detect that we're doing that and to pop up even more intrusive pop-ups and say, no, you can't, you have to watch ads, otherwise we'll go out of business. I mean, how do we allow ourselves to get into a position where seeing advertising and, and, and accepting advertising is the very lifeblood of the internet, that we're okay with the state of affairs and, and, and that we're like, this is fine. This is just the way it should be. It's astounding. It is weird. I, I, I've reached a point in my life where, you know, like when they talk about, you know, oh, Netflix is going to start ad- giving ads to their lowest tier subscriber, you know, something like that. You know, like when that pops up, my brain immediately goes, I will pay any amount of money to not see ads. Like, like they have me fully hostage. If it's double the price, I'll pay that. Like, uh, I, my, my life is so full of chaos. I just want to entertain myself a little bit without that being interrupted. Right. But of course, as you know, right, I mean, the, 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 the newest trend is to just make it so that the ads are indistinguishable from the actual programming that you're interested in, because that's the holy grail, right? How can we get to the point where it's like, you are not able to tell, <laughs> you're just going to absorb this information as you're uh, as you're watching the thing that you want to watch oh it's wild well and that's not new either you know that's like no. that's like okay a certain type of car in a james bond movie like that's right that's right <laughs> but like that's the most basic of advertisement of just you know that it's it's there on the screen you see it cool doing cool things you see james bond you know drinking a certain type of beer with the you know the label turned towards the audience like that kind of stuff it's always very comical for me to watch you know apple shows because you know the villains never use apple products right that's just the way it is they never do <laughs> and you're just like okay i i remember hearing that like a couple of years back that that was just like a contractual thing and, yep. <laughs> and people saying like, look, it's just, if you want to spot the villain early, you see the person using a non-Apple product. Right. And uh, then it won't be hidden from you. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a weird way to affect storytelling, right? It's so, it's so funny. Yeah. It is, it is strange how like that kind of the way that we interact with the world and kind of like our society around us just it bleeds into our entertainment like that. And yeah, yeah. And I, that's not new either. You know, like, you know, like Greek philosophers were writing about issues that they were dealing with. It, it, you're right. It's not new, but I also wonder to what extent it's more, it's more pervasive and, and affecting us in ways that it's very hard for us to tease apart. I mean, you know, uh, for example, right. Um, I just recently sort of was realizing this. Uh, we've been trained over the last 20 years or so to accept photographs to look a certain way. Um, it turns out that all the phone manufacturers have been sort of optimizing towards a similar look, which is this very saturated you know, kind of look for photographs, um, which is very striking when you compare them to older film pictures. And uh, the thing is, all of these phone cameras are doing their work based on computational photography, meaning they get their power from not necessarily because they have great lens and they do, but you know, because of physics, they're not as good as the lenses in your big, you know, um, uh, DSLRs, but they've been focusing their energy on the computational aspect of things. So all of these pictures you see are heavily manipulated by machine learning. Um, they're being optimized to fit a certain profile that machines have learned from our, you know, likes and upvotes to be what we collectively prefer. So slowly 
we have been surrounding ourselves by looking at reality through these images that are heavily machine processed without really thinking about the fact that it's being machine processed. You know, a lot of us have these images of places we've never been to or places we never will go to or people we never really interact with. And it's all entirely shaped by these machine learning filters. It's an entirely specific style of art. But we don't give this style of art a name. We don't call it impressionism. We don't call it anything. We just, just, it's just the way it is. We treat it as journalism, but it's not. It's, it's, it's filtered. It's heavily manipulated. Um, and it, that's pretty profound. I mean, our ideas about what is beautiful, what is, what is aesthetically pleasing, what is a realistic portrait of the world being shaped you know, by AI in this way, but we don't really talk very much about it. Um, and, and then I just don't know if that matters or not. Is this the sort of thing that will have an effect on us? Or is it just sort of like the sort of thing I worry about, but it's really nothing? I don't know. Yeah. Well, and they, they you know, that that's brought up occasionally in terms of um, like the idea of deep fakes, right? Yeah. Like this idea that, that the thing that we have kind of grown to, we've grown to accept that what we see is what we get. Like that's the reality. Um, and there is a very clear, okay, I'm watching fiction or I'm seeing what's real in the world. And you kind of, your brain divides it that way. But then suddenly we can now create moving things that, you know, it's not just Photoshop or, you know, Stalin removing the, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, his, his disgraced lieutenants after the fact from a photo. Well, like, you've got that Google ad at the Super Bowl, right? Where, where you can just like re- you raise people, just circle it. It's gone. Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. Like 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 the our perspective on reality is gonna have to change. Well, you already see evidence of that, right? In the way um people treat what is evidence and what is not. Um, you know, the the proliferation of cell phone videos. So whenever something bad happens, police brutality or you know, incidents of racism, we have cell phone videos of, of what happened. So people post that. But the counterpart to that is, if you don't have that kind of evidence, now people will not believe you because you can claim that this happened. And then people are like, well, where's your video? Where's the video? So the expectation that everything has to be proven by actual video, I think it's pretty insidious because the implication is without it, what happened to you is not real. That can have really negative consequences to victims um, and to just, you know, in general, the way we think about what is true and what is not. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. (laughs) 
is that the kind of thing that you would deal with when you were working um, as a consultant for uh, like like a professional witness or? Um, no, when I was working as a as an expert witness, uh, my focus was entirely on the technology side. It was my job to you know write expert reports to explain to the jury and the judge how things work. Um, you know, for patent cases, I would explain you know this is how the claims map to the technology. This is why you know. Um, you know, this is not a patent violation. It's not infringement because, you know, we don't do it. We don't do it within the claims, uh, things like that. Um, but the the sort of discussion we just had, that's the sort of thing I engage in as a fiction author. I mean, those are the bread and butter of my short fiction in particular. I love thinking about um, technology um, and, and how it changes the way we process reality because my thing is i i don't think technology is separate from humanity right my 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 view is the idea that humanity needs to be opposed to technology in this sort of nature versus tech kind of binary thinking is not really true um humans are fundamentally technological animals technology sort of is nothing more than the tangible manifestation of our mental patterns so in the same way, you can't understand beavers without studying their dams, and you can't understand honeybees without understanding honeycombs. How can you understand humans without understanding human craft? So a lot of my fiction is about human craft as an aspect of humanity, that, that technology is not something that inherently makes us inhuman or whatever, but rather it's just a manifestation of some of our deepest humanistic tendencies. Um, like the examples we've been discussing. Oh, I think that is stupidly interesting. Because look at humans; like without our tools, we are we are we are useless pink meat bags, right? Absolutely. And and the language that we use that is a technology. The language is a thing that we craft and shape constantly. I mean, look at how many arguments we have over language. If we didn't think language mattered, why would we have these arguments? Um, we really do think language is magic, and it is a craft that we shape. It's a technology we shape. Um, and then it ultimately becomes the very means through which we do thinking, right? There are a lot of people who think that language is not separable from thought, that you're incapable of thinking an idea unless you have the words for it, which I think is probably too extreme. I don't think that's actually true. Um, but it does, to to an extent, just show just how embedded technology and craft is in our lives. We, you cannot understand what human nature is without understanding human technology. Yeah. Yeah. And language, it just slots right in there, you know, like the ability to communicate and, and to work together and to work together, not just um, maybe on an emotional level, but on a physical level to develop new tools and to um, strive towards a particular goal you have to be able to clearly explain to another person what that goal is and how to reach it. Yeah, I mean, language is is amazing. As a piece of technology, it's just fascinating. It really does feel magical sometimes. I mean, the fact that, you know, one human can convey a bunch of mental states to another person and to be able to trust that it will more or less be conveyed accurately such that you can trust the other person with your life if you're both hunting the same, you know, mammoth or something you can be sure that when i say go around and flank them they will do that (laughs) not not end up being killed i mean it's just 
it's astounding that we developed this technology and are able to use it and trust our very lives with it. It's amazing. I, I do think about that sometimes when I'm writing is this, this funny <laughs> idea that I can put pictures in another person's head without using pictures. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, we are the original mid journey. That's what we do, right? We type <laughs> in prompts and mid journey pops up a picture, right? We are the original mid journey. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll think of myself like that from now on. <laughs> now, when when you're writing, do you find yourself because because you're very interested in the way that history and the future kind of interacts, and you know this this idea of predicting and you know failing to predict. When you're writing, do you ever run into kind of like a? Do you ever kind of come in conflict with yourself where you kind of you say, "I want to write about this thing." But am I putting too much stock into the idea that I'm writing about? Like, do you ever kind of just do, do the different parts of your brain ever run into each other? Oh man, that is a fascinating question. Oh my gosh, uh, I I gotta think that's true of every writer that they've had this sort of um, situation. I mean, I, I personally think it's very hard to write a character convincingly without empathizing with them in some way. So. When I'm writing characters, I, I have to sort of empathize with their points of view and, you know, stories about conflict. So I obviously end up empathizing with every side of a conflict. Um, so I, I have to say, fundamentally, um, on some level, um, every conflict in a story is map, mappable to a conflict in the writer's brain. I mean, you know, you, you, you have to. Um, I've never actually thought about this question the way you just put it. Uh, but now that I think about it, that has to be true. I mean, when I was writing my big epic fantasy, I, I had to sort of, you know, think about it from the perspective of every side in these massive conflicts. And and in some ways, it has to represent some sort of um, myself working out the right solution to these almost irreconcilable differences and, and debates. Oh, man, that that's fascinating. Um, does that happen to you? I know I got to turn around to you and, and ask the same thing. I mean, I, I sometimes think that, you know, like I, uh, um, gosh, I'm trying to remember the author that I heard talk about this once. He said that the real issue when you become a really experienced professional author, the real issue that you run into isn't coming up with ideas or getting them down it's that you suddenly have too many things you have you are able to to kind of see ahead several steps in a dozen different ways how each scene can go and so you're constantly trying to rein in your own predictions for the future mm. of a narrative so that you can stay focused and so that you can work towards a goal and and i i find that really interesting and i i find that happening to me more and more lately where I get kind of frozen over what's happening next in my books because I have mm. so many things that could happen next that I just I, I suddenly lock up and 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 then I, I I write something that's perfectly competent and then I go oh but I can do better I'm going to rewrite that I'm going to mm. I, I can do better the 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 narrative can be more entertaining the the future of this world could be more interesting. And, uh, and then it, it leaves me in kind of this weird little spiral where I'm just like hammering my head against, you know, maybe like a third of a book because I'm trying to get that perfect. And, and. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. 
this is sort of like the opposite of the writer's block. This is like the writer's hamster wheel problem. You know, you're, you're like spinning because you have so many possibilities. I love that. Yeah, it's it's just a... It, it is wild like that, that you can run into that kind of problem. It also reminds me very strangely of... Um, of our discussion about AI, because, you know, fundamentally something like ChatGPT is really nothing more than the language model that predicts what the next word is going to be. That's fundamentally how all of these models are. They're just, they're always predicting based on all the corpus uh, or corpora in in a lot of cases they've been trained on. um, What is the next word? What is the most likely word to come next? And, and sometimes, you know, um, ChatGPT, you know, some of these AI writing tools work by presenting the user with a bunch of alternatives and you pick the one that you like and so they can go on. It's a little bit like that. Maybe, you know, our brains really do function in some level like these language models and just constantly coming up with predictions. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's like the human brain, it, it calculates at like a like an absolutely incredible speed for certain things. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that really interesting that we're just these like kind of meat computers yeah you know that that are kind of the sum of all of our experiences and all of our knowledge and yeah and what we can have at our fingertips i'm definitely curious how that will kind of change the way that we like interact as human society over the next hundred years yeah i'm i'm definitely curious about to what extent these models can really give us real insights into the functioning of the human brain i mean you know there is um, a lot of very fascinating um, aspects about these language models that no one could have predicted. I mean, for example, the fact that this sort of brute force approach of using a neural network to be trained on a lot of data to generate new stuff, the fact that this approach has worked so well, I think has astounded everyone. Um, even the most ardent uh, connectionist, I think, could not have predicted the degree of success we've achieved. I mean, when I was in college and studying AI, um, that was back when, you know, it was in the middle of, of the AI winter and, and the idea that you can get to real AI simply by using a very simple neural network to absorb a lot of data and, and just do it real fast would have been laughable. I, I, I don't think anybody I knew at the time believed that this could be done. And, and you know, even the people who have done it are kind of astounded by so, how successful it's been. And if you ask them exactly how this works, I think everybody will say we're not entirely sure because, you know, peering into the neural networks and seeing the weights, um, we don't really fully understand how it's working. So there's the theory that, you know, any model sufficiently complicated to generate human-like utterances are probably too hard for our brains to comprehend, um, which is pretty amazing if you think about it, uh, that we can build a model to to imitate ourselves and in that process fail to understand the very model that we've built. Um, to me, it's both kind of beautiful and scary, you know, at the same time to think that. Oh, oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, that's something that scares normal people a lot is this idea. Like you talk to a doctor about some of the minutia of what he does and you will very quickly run into, yeah, that's a thing with the human body. We don't understand yet. We're trying to figure out. Right. Exactly. Like, and you think of the the te- the advances that we've had in things like medicine mm-hmm. and and understanding the human body, the human brain, and then you suddenly realize how little we know. That like the, your brain just blows up 
when you try to grasp those things. Well, it, it's got to keep us humble, right? I mean, you know, I hear people confidently saying, oh, you know, we will achieve, you know, total artificial intelligence in five years, or we will all live in the cloud, you know, by the time, you know, 20 years rolls around. And you're just like, how can you be confident about any of this? We know so little. <laughs> all right. So, Ken, I like to ask everyone at the end of the episode a sort of left field question. Um, <laughs> what's the last thing that you ate that blew your mind? <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, well, um, we were on vacation in Las Vegas, and we went to um, this really nice steakhouse. And um, I figured, you know, you don't do this very often in life, so you might as well do it once. We got uh, one of those $100 steaks. Um, so I had that. And uh, um, it, it was it was good. I mean, I consider myself a pretty good griller, but... That $100 steak was not something I could have done myself. So, yeah. Do, do you remember what it was? Um, it was a filet mignon. It was, it was done with a mushroom sauce. You know, it sounds very standard, but, you know, whatever it is, the, the magic of the preparation was such that it really was better than what I could have done myself. I, I'm definitely one of those people that I, I don't think that steak is the end-all be-all of great meals, like some people do, but a, a really well-done steak oh my gosh, it can just hit you in a place that you didn't even know. It's like like the weird, like prehistoric part of your brain is going, this is amazing. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It totally was incredible. It was it was a very good meal. I, I did one of those once with some friends where we went to like a really high-end steak house. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of those special meals when you, you know, you haven't seen each other for years, you get together, you do a nice meal together. And, um, and I got, uh, it was the first time I'd ever done steak a poivre, which is the, um, you know, steak with the, uh, creamy pepper sauce. Oh. And, and since then I taught myself how to make it. Oh my gosh. It's just, it's so much fun. Made even more fun when your wife thinks that you're burning down the kitchen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's just one of those, like, it is actually stupidly simple to do. Like, it's really not hard, but it seems so fancy. Wow. And then you're like, oh. This tastes just like the restaurant. I, I got to try that. That is amazing. Okay. Highly recommend the steak apoive. And and I'm I'm also a total sucker for filet mignon. You know, you get, everybody will argue about, oh, what's the best cut, you know? And a lot of people look at the filet and they're like, oh, that's, you know, that's passe. That's that's what people used to love. Sure. I love a filet. It's just. It's good. You know, it's it doesn't have a gristly fat on it. It's oh, very straightforward and clean. Yep. But sometimes the simple stuff, if you do it well, it, it, it really is amazing. Oh, yeah, for sure. That was author and presenter Ken Liu. You can find links to Ken's social media and website down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gullickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jason Nall, Kyle Anderson, Sexton Hardcastle, Taylon, Brian, Will Lebelski, Bradley Thornhill, and Roberto Fontata for their backing on Patreon. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.